This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, Alex Papadimas. Alex is the author of Keanu Reeves' Most Triumphant, The Movies and Meaning of an Irrepressible Icon, and is also the host of the podcast, The Big Hit Show. His latest book is Quantum Criminals, Ramblers, Wild Gamblers, and Other Soul Survivors from the Songs of Steely Dan, and is published by the University of Texas Press. Alex, thanks so much for joining me today. Bradley, thanks so much for having me. So just to get things started, can you briefly share with us what your book is about? Uh, my book, or or our book, because uh, Joan and I did this together, my uh, co-author, Joan LeMay, uh, Joan did a series of paintings of characters from the songs of Walter Becker and Donald Fagan, a.k.a. Steely Dan. And I wrote a series of essays about the characters from the songs and, by extension, about the songs themselves and about the albums and about Donald and Walter as cultural figures, as as men, as baby boomers, as, you know, all kinds of things and sort of explored every topic uh, related to Steely Dan that I I could uh, sort of shoehorn into this uh, format. So it's an exploration of the kind of everything that I know about uh, the band I've thought the most about in my lifetime. So we'll talk about those illustrations and kind of go through some of the music a little bit later. But first, I want to kind of begin about uh, discussing with you Steely Dan's reputation. And you begin the book by framing the evolution of Steely Dan's reputation, saying that in the early 2000s, they were negatively viewed by people whose tastes were shaped by the late 80s and early 90s indie rock. Um, I was born in the late 80s, so I was not uh, around for to kind of assess that. So can you tell us more about how Steely Dan was covered by the indie music press at that time? Yeah, I mean, I think that I grew up in a weird sort of historical blip in terms of people's opinion of Steely Dan. Because I very much the music that I when I started getting into music as a as a young person, a lot of what I gravitated to was stuff that had grown out of uh, punk and out of that, you know, the sort of privileging of amateurism that happened with punk where, you know, it was it was real if it kind of. It was kind of badly recorded and maybe sort of sometimes ineptly played, you know, but passionately played, of course, but like, there was something about it that was 
if it reminded you of recording studios or professional session musicians playing music or anything like that, if it reminded you of the gloss of the 70s and 80s, uh, that was what uh, you know music was pushing against at that time. And Steely Dan were sort of synonymous with a certain very high gloss, very highly produced, very thoughtfully played and arranged strain of jazz-inflected rock music from the 1970s. And so to me, they were a punchline before I even listened to them, before I really knew what they sounded like. I probably knew the hits, but I didn't, I had not gone into any kind of depth listening to that music. And so them and, you know, the kind of broader, what's now become known as the yacht rock canon, you know, it was a, it was, it was a, a, a joke to people, you know, sort of uh, the, the people that I looked up to would, you know, would make fun of them in record reviews and things like that. And it was a scribe, a certain, uh, you know, kind of toxic glossiness um, that we were supposed to hate, you know, we were being trained to hate because I was listening to a lot of music that was, you know, recorded on four tracks, you know, like really like, you know, salt of the earth, indie music, stuff like that. And I, you know, I, I've, I've talked about this a lot, but I really got into them almost ironically, almost as a joke. But the thing about Steely Dan is that you can't actually get into them ironically because they are actually functioning at such a high level of irony that they meet you on the level of your irony and you realize that it's, you know, that they are, that there's a self-awareness to their use of the the glossiness and the of you know to that aesthetic that they were working on they wanted it to sound like that for a reason because there was something interesting to them about pairing this incredibly smooth and you know often uh kind of you know like placid music almost with really dark narratives about human behavior and the human condition and you know the state of america at the turn of the 70s um and I think that, you know, I've just been fascinated by them ever since. I think I probably started listening to them in college. I probably bought my first Steely Dan record out of a dollar bin when I was a you know sophomore in college or something, which would have been the right at the kind of the end of the 90s and have just never stopped uh, listening and pondering and thinking about them. And so that's that is the, the you know, long version of uh, how one ends up writing a, a book entirely about Steely Dan. <laughs> so we're talking about a time when the internet is just about entering it into people's lives in a big way. It's still rather inaccessible for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Now you can go to social media and find tons of groups dedicated to Steely Dan, but back then not so much. And there was a great quote in your book from a music writer I read that said, if you are a diehard Steely Dan fan from back in the day, let me be the first to congratulate you on figuring out this whole internet thing. And so I thought that was just really funny. Um, yeah. Shout out to Brent DiCrescenzo uh, from from old Pitchfork uh, for that one. Yeah. So, what kind of impact did the like the early online internet days have on that band's reputation, and how like how was that formed as the internet was coming to play a major role in people's lives? That's an interesting question because I don't know if it mattered in the in the beginning of the internet if it was anything except you know I mean that's a joke about. You know, that that review is really interesting, right? Because that's a pitchfork review of the Steely Dan comeback album, Two Against Nature, from the year 2000. And uh, it's what's what's fascinating to, about that reading that review now is that it's it just takes for granted that you, the 
you know, 18 to 32 year old pitchfork reader of the time that you are not of the Steely Dan demographic. And it's one of those things where, you know, you always, I was a music editor and, you know, for a long time and you can always tell when, you know, when a publication knows that they have, there's no vested interest, they can just tee off on somebody because like at that time, Pitchfork was not going to try to interview Steely Dan. They don't want access to Donald and Walter or something like that. So they're free to just go in and, you know, this was something like Pitchfork doesn't really do this anymore, but back then, uh, you know, they would just, you know, kind of just, they would run a teardown review. They would run a 0.0 review of, you know, uh, of somebody's album, you know, a Travis Morrison album or something like that. And like they, you know, the, I think that they gave Steely Dan like a one, 1.7 it's like a really like you know it's a it's a it's just a flame job of a review um and they could do that because they knew they weren't going to alienate anybody in their listening and their reading audience uh by making fun of steely dan it's like it's sort of there's a you know there's a certain in-group aspect to that review that it's you know we're all on the same page here and we all hate steely dan and i'm going to write something very funny and entertaining about how much they suck and so that was like uh, you know that's that's what's going on there and so at the time i think it was still you know it, and what that is is like it, you know that sort of disdain for steely dan goes back to rock critics of previous generations like dave marsh who like sort of thought they were okay at the beginning and then as they got jazzier and more ornate kind of just decided like this isn't really rock and roll this isn't what i got into rock for it's not sort of it's lost its connection to to elvis presley and to the primal you know african-american musics that sort of generated rock and roll and therefore is like no longer a part of you know what i'm you know interested in so like th these guys have lost their way and they've gone like sort of you know up their own butts with this jazz stuff um does anybody ever say up their own butts on this show? Am I the first one? And I said butts as if I can't say the other, uh, you know, the other word. Uh, it's all um, good. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I like to be the, I like to break barriers in every podcast if I can. Uh, so, yeah, I think that, you know, around that time when that review was published, it, you know, people sort of, it was, I, I think it was, it, you know, it, it continued to be like cool indie rock people wanted nothing to do with this band. There are a million exceptions, obviously. And I talk about that in the book that like somebody like John Darnielle from the Mountain Goats was a huge Steely Dan fan as he was starting the band, as he was starting to record the first songs that would become like the first Mountain Goat songs, he was obsessed with Katie Lyde. And like he writes about sort of, he's written about listening to that, like the way that, a, you know, a jeweler would examine a rare gem like just trying to figure out how they did it which is so interesting because if you know anything about the mountain goats especially at the beginning like this is a man with an acoustic guitar and a boombox like making records in his house where you can like literally hear the tv on in the background sometimes like as he's starting to sort of record the song it could not be less like steely dan and yet there was something about that, that music that compelled him even though that wasn't the type of music he was making it wasn't until later on that the internet became a really important part of what we now sort of jokingly, half jokingly call the Danasons. That's really great. And I, I wanted to ask that question because I got fascinated by just the kind of turn of their reputation with a certain generation. And I think it's really fascinating because now as I see Gen Z adopting social media and like TikTok and all this stuff, and I see so many stands coming out of it who they kind of like tend to reject a lot of the narratives that surrounded with a lot of legacy acts as well i follow like this huge robbie robertson stan who is like 20 years old and is like 
the the King Robbie fan out there. And it's just so fascinating to me, just kind of observe how the different generations will change their relationship with an artist and the narrative behind that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's been a really fascinating thing to watch. And I feel like in the case of Steely Dan, it almost seems to have happened between the time that we started working on this book and the time that it came out, there's been a real shift. And like a lot of people have in the way that you're talking about that there are the, you know, these online stands who do reject that narrative or, but I also think that, you know, there's the difference for me at least is, you know, when I was growing up, like there were so many platforms for that narrative to be, it was being handed to you. And so many would like, you know, you got your information from like Rolling Stone or MTV or, you know, certain places. And like, it was always kind of coming to you. You know, you were really fed a lot of information about what was and was not cool. Um, and it came from your elders. It came from, you know, like there was, a, you were absorbing a lot of baby boomer opinions, whether you wanted, if you were into music, because you were going to be reading one of a couple of magazines that were all kind of shaped by that thinking. And I think so part of it is that it's not even some conscious rejection of narratives. It's just that I don't think that kids on TikTok today grow up with the same kind of like, you know, hegemonic kind of opinions being passed down mm -hmm. about things. So they're free to sort of put together a canon. Sorry about my dog in the background. Uh, put together a canon and an idea and a relationship to the canon that is their own but also each successive generation kind of you know goes back to this stuff and finds what's interesting the rejected stone becomes the cornerstone a little bit and they kind of build a narrative around it i'm a big fan of the podcast joker men uh which is a sort of an assessment of it's a wonderful show and it's a, what i love about it is that it's it is it, like Obviously, you know, Bob Dylan has never stopped being an iconic artist who is respected by, you know, generation after generation. But these are younger guys who are going back into the parts of the Bob Dylan canon that, you know, older rock critics kind of disdain and sort of tell you are not worth it. Like there's this whole thing about, you know, I think there's the Jonathan Lethem thing about how like every, but every rock critic always wants to write that whatever the new Bob Dylan album is, is the best one since Blood on the Tracks because that allows you to throw out all of this complicated, weird, problematic stuff that has happened in between those two peaks, you know, just to say like, if you've not really known what to do with Bob Dylan in this time, this is the one you can come back in. This is the bet. This is like, you know, get, get back on the bus. And they're like looking at that weird stuff at like live at Budokan and like the weird kind of moments within the, you know, this, the sort of strange turns that his career took. And I sort of love that that's happening. And I love that's one of my favorite things about, you know, one of my favorite things about like TikTok and about the social media and things like that are how it's changed people's relationship to this boomer rock music. I never could have predicted that we would have 20 year old Robbie Robertson stands. Uh, it, that, that would be a type of person that would exist. And yet they, they do. And they're, you know, it's fascinating. Like I have curated a really good old man TikTok for you page out of uh, people like this. I'm going to want to see that link. I'll have to connect with you later about that because that's fascinating. And yay to Joker, man. And that, um, you know, certainly any narrative that erases infidels just just bothers me. But you know, that's besides the point. But what we're talking about brings up a really fascinating quote um, I read in your book. And it's, uh, it's what you say, the straw men change, but the basic thrust of the argument stays the same. And before we go into the music of Steely Dan, I want you to kind of tell us a little bit more about that idea. Well, there's just there's always someone who is, you know, who is betraying what rock and roll truly is. Right. There's always someone who is the, you know, who is the scapegoat for that. And, you know, it's sort of it, like 
it, it shifts over time. And I forget exactly what I'm talking about, but I think I'm sort of, I'm, I think that's what I'm saying with the thing of like, you know, that Brent DiCrescenzo making fun of Steely Dan in Pitchfork in the early 2000s is just carrying on a tradition where, uh, you know, that goes back to Dave Marsh and goes back to the Rolling Stone reviewers who kind of hated the, you know, hated Gaucho and things like that, you know, who gave these, you know, kind of negative reviews to the jazzier Steely Dan records. There's always someone who's going to, you know, defend against this kind of thing. But what's fascinating is that then, you know, new groups of people come along and, you know, they don't have those prejudices and they haven't absorbed those things. And I, like I said, I don't think that that process happens in the same way anymore. I don't think that, you know, I have a 12 year old, a 13 year old who's going to, who's growing up and becoming a music fan and is not internalizing anything and has never read a Rolling Stone review of anything. Like the time when like being a person who was into music meant you'd go back and read like what Rolling Stone said about things back in the day. I just don't think it's the same. I don't think that, you know, that that chain has been broken. And, you know, as much as that's weird for, you know, the kind of cultural standing of music magazines and music journalism, I think it's probably good for music consumption because people just figure out like what they like and they can kind of pull from you know from everywhere so just as a quick sidebar how do you think that will affect music journalism going forward as as the as they continue to grow and become bigger music consumers i mean i think there are you know still people doing great music journalism everywhere on the internet and in print and all that and i think that you know this is what i'm describing is only is one of many problems afflicting anybody trying to do journalism in 2024 and beyond uh, but yeah i don't know i just i i, I think that it's a yeah I, in a way i think it's still the you know the sort of it's still on the writer to sort of make something that's compelling and make something that's worth reading whether you need this information or not but i think it's you know it's utility as a consumer guide and as a thing that tells you you know the thing about a lot of music journalism back in that period, even when I was growing up, is that it was, you know, it was helping you make a decision. Like if you could only spend $15.99 on one CD that, that weekend, what were you going to spend it on? And so with absent that pressure, because now streaming allows you to basically, you can, you know, there's, it's unlimited. Like what is the, you know, what is the purpose of it? And I think that's been an existential problem that music journalism has struggled with since then. But I mean, that, that that said, good writing is good writing and writing that kind of ties music to culture and ties, you know, sort of enlarges people's understanding of, a, you know, a song's place in their reality is always going to be of value, I feel like. I hope. So I really appreciate you exploring all that with me and sharing your insights. Um, Steely Dan really kind of have a unique career arc. And so I think it was important to talk about that context and, the re and how their reception has shifted over the decades. And so with that, I want to start exploring the music with you. And they made a lot of great music, all of which you cover throughout the book very beautifully. Um, we don't have time to go through, go through everything here, but I did want to talk about a few songs and albums. And just to kick things off with, Do It Again, the first track on their first album, is one of their more well-known hits. And you say about the title that it is maybe the first great inside joke by two of modern music's greatest inside jokers. So can you break down that punchline for us? Yeah, it's their, I mean, it's the first song on the first side of their first album, but it's called Do It Again. And it's about endlessly, it's it's a song about endlessly repeating patterns in life and pe the way that we are drawn back to doing, we do the same 
dumb things over and over again, expecting a different result. The same self-destructive things. Like it's about one character or three characters who are, you know, sort of undone by their own, you know, the, the grooves that they're stuck in as people. But it's just, it was funny to me in the moment. It's funny to sort of have to answer questions about something that was very amusing to you at like 11 p.m. one night as you were writing a book. But like, it's funny to me because it is, it's not really their first single. It's the first single off their album, but they have non-album singles. And so in their mind, it's almost like it makes sense. But it's just, it's like the idea of a song that's, I don't know why. It's the song being called Do It Again as if they're not doing it for the first time, like as if this is not the very beginning of their career. It's as if, but it also has that feeling of, you know, it's one of the mysteries of Steely Dance. The thing that makes them, you know, the mysterious is like, well, why is this called Do It Again? Why are we doing it again? We've never done it before. As far as we know, as like listeners, we've never, this is our first experience with you. Um, I don't know. That might, that one might fall apart in like when sort of, it might be like trying to move a sandcastle, like explaining that one. I don't know. No, I think it was great. That's why I asked about it. Okay. <laughs> I loved it. Okay. Um, so jazz played a huge role in influencing Steely Dan, and so much so that you say they were marked at the cellular level by a specific and finite moment in jazz history. What were those influences, and what are some songs where you can really get a sense of that jazz influence? So they were jazz heads. They had sort of passed through rock and roll the way that um, everyone of that generation did, Donald and Walter. But they were also jazz snobs. They were guys who believed on, you know, that there was a, there was a golden age of jazz and that it was in the past. And so I think that the, you know, the important thing about it, obviously they would draw from jazz throughout their career. They would employ jazz players on their records. They would employ, you know, they, they wanted to be, they did not want to make fusion, which was a very popular thing around that time. And it was like, there, that's that was a completely different way of interpolating jazz into rock music that they were pretty disdainful of and not interested in at all. They wanted something, they were, like they wanted to play rock music with the sort of, you know, they said, they described it as like, they wanted like the forward rush of jazz. And they're th what they're thinking about when they say that is, you know, I think fundamentally like Charlie Parker and everything that sort of like, grows out of charlie parker and out of that great period of you know charlie parker's you know great sort of creative ferment and then they kind of get off the bus around like i think like love supreme like whenever sort of harmony kind of becomes less important like they sort of lose a lot of interest in it and like they would do interviews subsequently like people would they talk to you know musician magazine and stuff and like guys would try to engage them on like new jazz recordings that they thought might be sort of interesting and they'd be like oh not really like so i think that you know that there's a it's musically important but i think it's also kind of important to their as a you know kind of a window on their worldview that they were always kind of looking back to some sort of idealized past even as they embraced kind of the very most most modern possible ways of making records, they were thinking about something that, you know, had been the, like a form of music that to them had sort of, you know, had, had almost died at a point. Like, so they were looking back at sort of like the, you know, this, this golden age of jazz that was very much behind them. But at the same time, like it was something that they had caught the tail end of. They had been around for it. You know, when Donald was like 12, he hitchhiked to the Newport Jazz Festival to go see all of the, the greats. And like, they would go into New York from the suburbs and they would see these people and like, you know, who were still doing shows at that time. I don't know if it was, you know, 
not i don't think charlie parker ever but like they probably saw all you know many of the sort of living greats of that time and like so they had experienced it was real to them in in that way and you know i think that that was something that was in a way as much as like you know they have acknowledged you know kind of feeling sort of you know influenced by the beatles like everybody else and you know sort of there are like there is rock music that you know affected them but jazz was way more important and r&b was way more important you know the, of the of that time i think like you know blues and r&b is probably the as you know as important to the the dna of steely dan as anything else so for those who may be less familiar with steely dan what are some of the songs where you can actually hear that jazz influence coming through i mean i think in a sense it's it's everywhere in the work that they did but i think of you know the title song uh from asia you know, with this the Wayne Shorter solo, they brought in Wayne Shorter, who had been Miles Davis's uh, Miles Davis's great sort of quintet. You know that they you know pulled in these great players to do the thing you know that they couldn't really do. You know, and they you know I think of like you know the cover of uh, East St. Louis Toodaloo, which was the you know Charlie Parker's band's theme song um, that's on Pretzel Logic, and all of those all of those things but what's interesting about it is that they weren't trying to be like i said they weren't making you know it's like jazz rock is the very is the very easiest way to talk about what steely dan did but they weren't trying to replicate the sound of a jazz band and the sound of improvisation they weren't really improvisers like the people who played the solos were free to sort of create something within that space in the song but the songs themselves were incredibly tightly arranged and so that's one of the paradoxes is they are like super influenced by jazz but like what's the most basic thing about jazz is is an improvised music and like they were super uptight about you know the arrangement and like having everything played a certain way and the way that they heard it in their heads which is like antithetical to like even the most basic sort of concept of like what jazz is which is great because anytime you have a certain you know figured out steely dan like they will you know tip over the table and like you will you'll, you'll be wrong about that we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So early on in their careers, Donald and Walter were writing songs for other artists at the Brill Building, such as Barbra Streisand. But they were also writing songs that they would eventually record together as Steely Dan. And one of the songs was Brooklyn Owes the Charmer Under Me from their first album. And while they're writing these songs, you say that they're also trying on and discarding personas that wouldn't necessarily fit them as artists. Can you tell us about that process and those personas and kind of finding the core of Steely Dan? Yeah, I mean, they were... It's weird because they they come to New York uh, sort of at the turn the end of the 60s, basically, when they both got out of Bard College. And somehow it, what makes sense to them is to gravitate to the Brill Building, which had been this sort of like the, the mecca of pop songwriting in America in the early 60s, but was now very much like past that point as, you know, music had taken, you know, different turns and gone in different directions. And so this was kind of the it was the the waning days of the Brill Building 
And, you know, it was just like a, a bunch of weird characters passing in and out and like it had become a little bit sort of more countercultural in there. And, you know, like there's a, you know, there's pictures of them with like a, you know, big pot leaf poster in their little office where they would write songs. But it's very much like sort of they were they went and tried to work in the pop songwriting format that like a sort of a Carol King or Jerry Goffin would have worked in, you know, like they tried to sort of follow in those footsteps where it's the artists are here. The songwriters are here. The songwriters are not performers. They are the people who write the songs, but like, they don't have to be, you know, visually appealing. They don't, there's no sort of anything the, the presentation doesn't matter because like singers who are look good in a suit or a dress or whatever are going to perform this live and everything. So they start writing these songs and they're too weird for most people to record like that Barbara Streisand song that you mentioned, like they didn't write that for Barbara Streisand. They wrote that and then somebody kind of messed around with it and it ended up getting recorded by Barbara Streisand. But like they've said, like it was changed beyond the point that they had to take responsibility for it. So they're kind of like doing this very cynical thing where they are making money by writing, you know, they figured out a way to make money writing songs but at the same time, they're writing songs that they know no one's ever going to record. So they're going to get paid for this song when they turn it in. But it's never, they don't really care it's going to become a hit. And eventually what happens is they take a, another job doing essentially the same thing for ABC Records out in Hollywood. And they move to LA for this. And eventually ABC like calls their bluff and is like, no one's going to record these songs but you guys. So you need to put a band together and start doing it. And so that's the, the, you know, they start on this very sort of strange foot because they never intended to be recording artists in that sense. They may have aspired to it, but they weren't really considering it as an option. And that's one of the reasons why, like, you know, they were a lot of their early material, like they, they wrote a lot of stuff that they couldn't really perform. You know, Donald was writing songs that were outside of his vocal range all the time. And like, that's why they have, you know, a different lead singer for the first album, this guy, David Palmer, who doesn't last very long. But like, he's a guy who can sing things that Donald can't. And Donald doesn't feel confident in himself as a frontman uh, to do that. I don't know if I've answered your question, but I've talked for a while in response to it. No, it was a really great question. Um, I, I really liked it. Okay. That's, yeah. I, I hope we got to, I hope it was, I hope it was of value, even if it does not directly address what you were asking. No, it's, 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 this is a two way street here. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an organic conversations, uh, structured organic conversation, but one nonetheless, um, so there's another quote I want to read from your book because I found it really fascinating and it kind of touches up upon what we were discussing earlier. And you write, considering that one thing rock music has always been good at is wedging open gaps between generations, you think there'd be more rock songs about being afraid of younger and cooler people than you. And you wrote this in the context of the song Showbiz Kids. And so I wanted to get more uh, of a sense of, of your idea behind that in relation to that song. Yeah, Showbiz Kids is about, to me anyway, it's almost like a song that you might write today if you were an older person looking kind of with alarm at like influencer culture almost. You know, I think that it's it, like it's one of several steely dan songs where they have come out to los angeles and they kind of take a dim view of it you know because they really that was a really fruitful kind of avenue for them sort of making fun of la and kind of you know kind of the type of person that you encounter in you know sort of like mid to late 70s 
Los Angeles in the music industry in and around music and entertainment. And so Showbiz Kids is this description of these kind of, it, it, the, the narrator is sort of repulsed or he's expressing revulsion, but he seems sort of attracted to them as well. He seems sort of fascinated by them. He's like, they got the heavenly bodies, you know, they got the Steely Dan t-shirt, which is a weird sort of inside joke that like, you know, the young kids were, you know, starting to be into them and everything. And it's a theme that they would return to over and over which is really funny when you realize that like they're, you know, all of the work that they did up until the point where they kind of took a hiatus as a band at the dawn of the eighties, they were under 30 at that point. So they're already feeling they were in their late twenties, really feeling like they were so alienated from people in their early twenties, even like there's this very strange kind of generation gap thing, you know, and part of that is because like there were, as I, you know, as I sort of alluded to, we're talking about jazz, they're kind of young fogies, but they also have this, you know, this strange feeling and they sort of articulated something that I haven't really seen a lot of people. I can't think of a lot of other people in music who've articulated that feeling, but the feeling that you, you could, you know, that I think is a real feeling that people have like, at, you know, then you're 30 years old and you're like, what are these 22 year olds about? And like, we think of that as a modern feeling where it's like, we don't understand TikTokers or something like, you know, so I'm, you know, I'm 46. And like, I, you know, it's like that I, I can feel that. I'm like, what's go, I don't know what's going on. And like, this is a completely different way of apprehending reality. And like, I don't, I don't know how to communicate with these people, but Donald and Walter were doing that in the seventies, like back when it was, you know, sort of, I feel like those gaps probably seemed much less, profound in a way and they kept doing it you know it's like hey 19 is about that it's like you know the hey 19 is talked about as being a sort of a pervy old dirty old man song like one of their dirty old man songs but what it really is about is like this guy who's like i don't even know who you are i don't even understand you because i just mentioned aretha franklin and you're like i don't know who that is you know it's like about it's that it's it and that can feel so like just profound and strange and can make you feel adrift in the world if there are things that are your cultural touchstones and you're kind of like you know that your understanding of the world is predicated on aretha franklin and somebody's like aretha who you know can destroy you that's what that's what hey 19 is about and so they were writing about this like i can't think of there, there's I, I like that's a real feeling and it's something that i very few people have really touched on like the lcd sound system song losing my edge i write about this in the book but like that's the closest thing i can think of to like a modern song about that where it's some guy who has spent his entire life kind of becoming like an authority on all the cool music in the world and then these new kids are coming up behind him it's kind of like what we've been talking about where like they can sort of instantly download all of this information and suddenly everything that you have like as a you know digging through records all of everything you have learned from your experience and like you know from going to shows and spending your life in music suddenly here are all these kids who, who know everything you do they have all the superpowers that you have and like they're you know they're going to kick you off the the dj booth uh you know and kind of take over and that feeling of being afraid of the children is you know it's uh, it's real and i think very few people have talked about it no disrespect to TikTokers, by the way. I love, you know, I love young people, but I'm not actually, but like, I feel like it's at the same time, like it's a, you know, 
it, it, it's an under-discussed thing in pop music. I'm really glad you brought up that alienation thing because I, I don't think it just exists like across the generations, but it, it, thanks to algorithms and how you can just curate everything that you want on demand, there's there's a type of alien, alienation even within the generations themselves because we're not all looking at the same thing. That's just mm-hmm. that's just how it is by the nature of the industry right now. And so it's it, it will be fascinating to see how that kind of plays out, you know, really. Um, I, I think one of the things I see it coming out of it is this, what I refer to as like the memification of culture, like reducing like complex figures and ideas to just like just a one note statement about what that artist may be. You know, uh, for example, like Frank Zappa is seen as an artist who like fought for free speech, but he's a lot more complicated than that in terms of what that meant, you know, such as how his work specifically addressed Christian nationalism, but gets devolved to just free speech. And, you know, free speech doesn't have necessarily have the same gravitas as it does now when you've got right wing grifters who use that to, you know, profit off of the destruction of our democracy so it's 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 we're 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 in untreaded territory in a lot of different ways and it's just going to be fascinating to see how that gets played out in the culture of that oh for sure and i mean i think we're i i sometimes feel like we're we're lucky that uh you know frank zappa as much as frank's Zappa was great. We are lucky that Frank Zappa is not with us now because I really worry about where Frank Zappa would be in this conversation. Like in terms of the, you know, like that, like I, my nightmare is that like Frank Zappa would be like Dave Chappelle. Like he'd be on that side of things, you know, like there would be something like that. I hope that he would be able to see through some of that garbage with his kind of, you know, patented ability to see through bullshit, but I'm not sure. Um, we'll never know. <laughs> it, we'll never know. And it's probably good that we don't know. It's like we can certainly, it's, it, it's, it's probably for the best. Um, but yeah, no, that's sort of, I don't like, you said a couple of things that were really interesting. Um, you know, but it's, I think like one of the things, you know, talking about alienation, like, and algorithms and everything, it's, you know, it's, it's, we no longer share a set of reference points in the same way. We can no longer count on a set of shared reference points. There's a Lester Bangs quote that I love from his, uh, when Elvis died. Uh, his obituary for Elvis, which is a wonderful piece of writing. So one of his best pieces, but it ends with him saying, I'm going to misquote it, but it's basically, you know, we will never agree on anything like we agreed on Elvis. So I will not say goodbye to him. I will say goodbye to you. And it, that feels so prophetic. It's like something that, you know, like that, that's the, that's the point with where we start to sort of drift apart as people that we no longer have these, you know, there's no longer, you know, as, as much as like, you know, there were, you know, it's there, w- there's no monoculture. So we don't have any kind of thing to agree on and push against and kind of all talk about and all sort of have a feeling about. And, you know, that's sort of for good and for ill, I think. So steering back to Steely Dan and kind of this memification and reference point, yeah. if there's one word that can kind of describe Steely Dan, it's perfectionist. And, um, that's how I, I had always viewed them because that's the narrative that I'd always heard about uh, associated with Steely Dan. Um, and I know that kind of started with the album Pretzel Logic. But your book offers some clarity to, into this. And you write that so many of the stories about how their records came to be are really stories about human error and fail and falling victim to circumstances even control freaks can't control. And I want to know, can you talk about that part of Steely Dan's legacy and, and why and how it has endured so long? Yeah. I mean, they were trying to make records at a level of precision 
that is now available to everyone it, pretty much like you can sort of you, you can make a perfect beat very easily like if you want to perfectly tie you know if you want a sort of like absolutely flawless time from a drum beat you can program something like that it will take you two minutes in garage band and you can have that exactly perfect they wanted to do that back when it was very very difficult back when you either had to get a drummer who was who had perfect time like who could keep perfect time or there would need to be a technological solution you know so they used things like tape loops and then eventually like they they invent a technology they invent a studio computer that is effectively like it's effectively like the first drum machine or the first like pro, you know it programmed sampled drums for the first time and it required you to enter just reams of code and then you would get like boom boom like you would get one sort of beat out of it they were doing things that are now really easy back when it was really hard and a lot of technical issues came along with that you know and so there's all this like they used this you know there's a whole story you know written about uh, all the you know advanced technology that they used in recording Katie Lied, which ultimately led to the tapes of Katie Lied being sort of adulterated and not really playable and not reproducible. So they hate Katie Lied because it's like, for them, it's a monument to what they were striving toward and you know failed to achieve in the studio because it's you know the, there was something about they use this very sophisticated uh, noise reduction technology that was supposed to be better than dolby's noise reduction but then they go back and play the tapes and like there's this it just sounds dead like there's you know it's like underwater and you know that continued to happen over and over again and so it's kind of like it, as much as they achieved records that sounded really perfect and like became like the gold standard for audio files and then things like that like they used to you know when you'd go in the stereo store in 1979 or 1980 or whatever, and they wanted to sell you a, you know, a turntable or speakers or whatever, they would put on Asia because it sounded so perfect. And it was like, so it was so, it was just exactly, you would use that to like, sound men would use that to tune the venue because they knew that it was mixed so perfectly. And if it sounded good, it meant you had sort of tuned the venue properly. Um, and then I guess for CDs, it was the night fly by Donald Fagan. It was Donald's first, uh, solo album became that you know the same thing where if you wanted to demonstrate how good cds could sound you'd put that on as much as they became synonymous with that though so much of their history and their legacy is about them striving for something that they could not achieve and a record like katie lied is like this it's a monument to what they wanted and to their you know almost like it's the it's the tombstone for their kind of beliefs it's the tombstone for like what they wanted to try to achieve um, and I find that so moving, like that they it's it's not that they were these uptight guys who got everything right and forced everything to be perfect. It's that they tried and tried and tried and failed and failed and failed, which is the story of making art, essentially. And, you know, eventually it destroys them. Like the making of Gaucho is this process that, you know, I mean, it's if you read the you know, it's the it's a. Uh, 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 Robert Palmer, the music journalist, not the uh, simply irresistible guy, but the famous uh, you know Rolling Stone journalist, goes and sees them in the studio making uh, Gaucho, and just describes Donald as just this miserable as they're mixing Gaucho, and they mixed it like three hundred times or something famously, and 
you know, they have to just go in and like, just listen to it over and over and over again. And he just, it's like, he just describes Donald's this chain smoking ghost. Who's just so miserable <laughs> doing all this because by that point, like Walter had kind of drifted away from the studio process because he was dealing with his sort of personal issues. And he'd been in this cab accident that had sidelined him. And, you know, so it's just Donald and it's, you know, as much as like Asia is, the greatest, you know, achievement of perfectionist musicians of that era, Gaucho becomes this, you know, this is the cautionary tale. This is what happens when you go too far. Like when you try to take it to, you know, what if it was 120% perfect? And then that, you know, you just go mad. So so I want to talk about both those albums. Um, and I'm glad you brought up Asia in regards to the perfectionism element. Um, because if people only really own one Steely Dan album, it's a safe bet that that's probably that one. And yeah. why not? It's it's a, an incredibly great album. Um, and you write about it that it is the one Steely Dan album where everything actually worked out. And so I wanted to get a sense of like what exactly happened to have everything work out for, for them. Because to, to kind of read, to go from these were people labeled as projection a perfectionist where things just kind of you know fell into place but all these problems what made asia kind of stand out as this is the one where it all went right i mean just it's it's just the i think it's the one where they really achieved what they were going for i think I, like that's I, I, I that's sort of tautological to say in a way like it's not like you know they're like you know uh, I don't know. I think it's that they were, you know, they were suddenly, they had a new record deal. They had sort of, they were recording in New York after many years of working in Los Angeles. You know, they had a different cast of characters and everything. And it's just like, it's the, it's the best case scenario for working the way that they worked because they would put together the greatest band you could imagine out of like the sort of these incredible session players who would, you know, were accustomed to you know, just kind of clocking in and playing something pretty, you know, sort of pedestrian, like a backing track for a pop song and all the session guys, all the jazz guys and all the sort of rock session players. Cause by this point it's like the, you know, late seventies. And there's a whole class of like just incredibly hot, just hotshot players who move around from session to session and back people up. And, you know, sort of that's something that had existed in other music for a long time, but like now there's a whole, like rock has its own sort of retinue of these guys. And Steely Dan had their pick of these musicians because everybody wanted to play on the Steely Dan sessions because they're all guys who can play anything and usually have to just play and, you know, but like we're, you know, sometimes doing like dog food commercials, you know, just like whatever you would just do something sort of like boring that's like beneath you as a, you know, uh, sort of a craftsman and a musician and everything. And they would finally, they would, everybody wanted to do the Steely Dan sessions because it would be, uh, the, you know, it's your chance to play something really complicated that is like actually like at your level. Like, so it's like, you know, you're, you've been playing the game on easy mode and you finally get to play it on hard mode and show like, you know, like how, like amazing your chops are so they put together these bands and have them record and then if they didn't like what they got out of that session they would scrap the whole band and start over because by this point they were the only constants uh in the sort of steely dan lineup and everything everybody else was just sort of a hired gun and so they would sort of just swap out and you'd come back the next day and there'd be an entirely different band would play the song and like their version of it might be the one that would get recorded they would try between seven and nine. They, they tried between seven and nine different guitarists to play the guitar solo on Peg, 
And, you know, I, I challenge you to say that, you know, people are like, uh, you know, perfectionism is bad. We're supposed to believe that perfectionism is bad, but like perfectionism is what gave us that solo. And like, there's a video of them playing some of the solos that they didn't use and they're not as good. Like they knew what they wanted and they got there. So I think it just it's just where that it, it, Asia is like where that approach generated the greatest returns. And it's really an advertisement for doing it that way. Whereas Gaucho, which is equally brilliant, it's a fantastic record. It might even be, it's a more complicated record lyrically and conceptually and all of that. Um, but I think it really kind of ruined their lives while they were making it. And they kind of walked away from music for a bit afterwards, both of them, you know, because I think it was such a, you know, just a you know traumatizing experience you know like you hear about you hear about like being people being directed by stanley kubrick like you hear about scatman crothers in the shining like doing take 75 of some scene in the shining and just breaking down in tears and being like mr kubrick like what do you want what could i do i don't what how could i do this differently and like that's the you know i feel like they did that to themselves almost you know to the players certainly but like ultimately to themselves like that demand and of perfectionism just kind of breaks you eventually like how do you do this you know how do you as a human being make something that is an in at an operating an inhuman level of perfection yeah there's a lot of psychology to that and maybe we can segue to that because in in talking about gaucho the the, the final album before their 20-year hiatus uh you describe it as a concept album about power and you know i appreciate you talking about the per the perfectionism in the production and the recording of it but perhaps the the concept of power within the lyrics kind of shaped how the album was created as well. Um, do you do you see that kind of coming to play, those kind of dynamics? Well, yeah, I mean, it's about trying, you know, the thing about power is that as soon as you have it, you're trying to hold on to it, right? And so you're trying to maintain something. And so they're trying to maintain something that they've achieved with Asia and they're trying to better something, you know, and you know, at a certain point, it's, you know, it's, it's destructive. You can only, you know, you can only do so much, you know, and I think it's, but I think that it's, it's about, you know, gaucho, it's like, it's about, you know, holding on too tightly and trying to sort of make that thing that you can't, you know, that, that actually you, you, the, a, one of the best pieces of writing advice I ever got was write the book that you're writing or write the story that you're writing is how it was phrased to me. And what that means or what it means to me is that at a certain point, whatever you set out to do, whatever the kind of castle in the sky version of the thing that you wanted to do was at a certain point, you have a deadline and you have a certain amount of work that you've already done. And that has kind of established like where you're going from, from there. You have figured out like, this is the version that you're going to be able to execute and you can't start over. And you just have to say like, okay, this isn't maybe necessarily the thing that I imagined it was going to be, but it has become something different. And I'm going to trust that there, uh, you know, that people will be able to see value in it. And, you know, that like, also that someone reading this isn't going to know what it was supposed to read like in my head, right? Like they can't, they can't see the sort of, you know, abstract version, the dream version that you had of like what this was going to be. As far as they're concerned, they don't, this is a magic trick. Once they open it, they don't know where it came from. It's just a thing that sort of exists. And like, it's a thing that spontaneously existed. And like, they don't know that it didn't just go directly from your brain to the page, like as that thing. 
And that's the thing that I have to always remind myself of when it's like, oh, this isn't like I wanted it to be. I wanted this to read more like this and like it's more, you know, it's this, whatever. Like, I, you know, and I think that that was something they really struggled with because they knew what they wanted everything to sound like and they knew how good they wanted it to sound and they knew how perfect they wanted it to be. But they were just men. They were just regular dudes. And they had problems in their lives that got in the way of things. And like their players, they brought in people who were just like ordinary people and like, you know, had, were you know, human frailty, you know, so they could sort of bring in the best drummers in the world and then they could take the best, the drumming of the best drummers in the world and put it into a computer so that it could be that much more precise in time and all of that. But like they could not ultimately, you know, things still broke and didn't work and didn't come out the way that they wanted it to. And like, I think that was something that they really had a hard time with over, you know, at, at that point, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's the kind of, that's the thing that's the most moving to me in a way is that they continued striving for it, even in the face of, you know, the adversity and the adversity that it created for them, you know, that they didn't just you know, except like, oh, we're just going to go in the studio and see what happens and kind of let the process be the process or whatever. Like they really sort of tried to, you know, they really wanted it to be that way. They wanted to take the castle in the sky and like build it in real life that you could walk through it. And as much as that's like a quixotic and sort of, you know, absurd kind of goal, it's, I, I just, I find it incredibly moving and it's, and it's just strange that they like, you know, they just never saw that perfectionism. You know, they just saw it as a virtue. See, hearing that is so fascinating to me um, about Gaucho and your thoughts on it, because you write in your book that there's a song called The Second Arrangement, and you say it's the pivotal song from those sessions, but it doesn't even make it the album. And um, I just I just thought that kind of, um, that 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 conflict between that, per, that perfectionism and then here's this song that's so integral to the, the creation of this, um, not even ended up, end up there. So um, that's a bit more of a deep cut. So can you tell us more about that song and a little bit about the story behind it? Yeah, so there's a song. They write a song called The Second Arrangement. It's about, uh, it's kind of, a, it's about a guy with maybe two, two families or a guy with maybe two girlfriends, something like that, kind of moving around from thing to thing. It's a very 70s kind of narrative where he's, you know, he's kind of got a bag of laundry and stuff in his, in his car and he's just going around life. And it's, you know, great song, really good. You know, probably would have been like the first single on that record. And they work, I forget how long, to get it just right but they're having a very hard time like getting anything down on tape for gaucho and they finally have arrived at a version of the second arrangement that they are happy with and the story goes and uh you know shout out to uh, jake maluli from the newsletter the expanding dan who has actually tracked down this guy and talked to him and kind of gotten the full story but essentially what happens is a studio assistant is like setting up the studio for the next day, setting up the tapes so that they can kind of get back to work the next day and accidentally erases the first, I don't know, few minutes of the, the, the master tape of this version of the second arrangement, this one version of the second arrangement where they, that they were happy with. And they can never get it back. They can never do the get back to the point where they were happy with it and it's also they are so broken by doing all of this work and then losing all of this work 
to a, a dumb accident in the studio that they're just like, forget it. I don't ever want to touch the second arrangement again. And so the second arrangement kind of like passes into legend as a result, because it's the song that was so, it's like, you know, could God make a boulder so heavy he even he couldn't lift it? Like, you know, could Steely Dan write a song so perfect that it was too perfect to be recorded? And it's like un, unreplicatable. Um, and there are various versions of it that have circulated for a long time, like on bootlegs. And, you know, I, I sort of first heard it, like when I, you know, started like, downloading bootleg steely dan music in the you know in the 2000s or whatever like when you sort of go on blogs and stuff and like find that stuff and it's on it's been mixed in with the gaucho demos and over the years different ones have come to light and i think basically like that recently this in just in this past year we got what is probably going to be the best version of it like there's people who have made it like people had gone in and done like ai to it and like tried to make it sound like exactly right you know they've done the ai things but that doesn't really count um someone unearthed uh it's uh the uh daughter of uh, steely dan's longtime engineer roger nichols like found uh like what seems to have been a mixed down tape of like the version of second arrangement but i like that we will never have the real one like there's never going to be like a sort of expanded edition of gaucho with that on there because like they just they don't have it it just doesn't exist and i think it should not exist i think it's like better i liked hearing the best the sort of you know the recent one that came out but to me the the, the like the second arrangement is this watery sounding bootleg that i've had on you know like i have an ipod over there that has it on there like you know so it goes back that far and like that's the one that sort of means something to me because it's this thing it's like this it's a symbol of everything that they could not capture or everything that was like impossible to capture in you know in their music and so i kind of i kind of love that about it and like you know it's also just a nice like snobby thing to say is like my favorite song on gaucho is the song that's not on gaucho thank you so much for diving into steely dan's music with me and and as i mentioned at the beginning of the episode there's a lot of music to cover and you do such an a, a brilliant job exploring every song and breaking down the history and themes behind them. So if people want to know more about the music, they can check out the book. However, besides the music, this book features a lot of gorgeous illustrations from Joan LeMay. They aren't here to talk about their illustrations, but uh, could you share some insight to how that part of the book came together? Yeah, I mean, the book would not have come together if not for Joan and this uh, these illustrations. Uh, basically, I had been working, you know, talk about perfectionism, talk about, you know, like destroying your brain, uh, but, you know, by like trying to get something dialed in too perfectly. I had been working on a book proposal for a Steely Dan book for about two years two 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 and a half something like that i actually wrote the uh the keanu reeves book my first book i wrote that in between starting and finishing the proposal for steely dan like i wrote an entire other book while i was kind of noodling on this proposal and it was not it was a lot of the material that i was you know sort of wanted to include in the book is stuff that ended up in quantum criminals like ended like it is in the finished version but i didn't really know what the spine of it was until Joan, who was somebody I had sort of, you know, I'd known a little bit like professionally in another life because she was a music publicist before she uh, took up, you know, art as a full-time career. Um, it, so I, I knew her a little bit and she sort of announced that she was going, she wanted to do a zine where she was going to paint, or I guess she was going to draw every Steely Dan character, every named character in a Steely Dan song. And at that point, uh, the sort of acquiring editor from UT, Jessica Hopper, who's a longtime friend of mine, who's also an even longer time friend of Jones, 
kind of brought us together to do this project was kind of like your project and Joan's project should be one project. And at that point, it became very easy to write the book because suddenly it was like, oh, I'm writing a collection of uh, sort of almost like liner notes to a collection of paintings. Like I'm writing a collection of essays that go with these paintings of the characters. And it's just sort of, you know, so it never like practically speaking, I don't know if this book would exist if that one little piece that's like a sort of, you know, that that like, you know, oh, it's not a book about Steely Dan. It's not a book of essays about Steely Dan. It's a book of essays about Steely Dan characters. That changes everything and like made it possible to do the book. Like then it's suddenly like it's, you know, it's almost it's like that we needed we couldn't build the car until we had the hood ornament, you know, like that's the sort of like that's how you kind of figure it out. Um, so it's the most important. It's a small idea. and It's the most important idea in the in the whole thing. And from there, it's just, uh, you know, it became about, you know, because Joan is faster than me uh, at doing her art than I am at doing my art. So a lot of this stuff was finished as I was still working on the text. And so I try, I think I sort of started writing to the images a little bit and writing to the tone of the images. And yeah, I don't know. I just, I think it's like the, the, the paintings sort of, the paintings change everything and the paintings sort of took it to, you know, it, there's like a, you know, sort of like a warmth and humor and color that comes in with that, that, you know, I don't know if it would have been there. I think I probably would have tacked like overly serious or something. And there was something about kind of seeing once you've seen, uh, you know, kind of Jones interpretation of, you know, the, the, the major dude or something like you can't, <laughs> you can't get too like, uh, you know, uh, ponderous uh, with the, the prose because there's something really joyous about these things. Um, and yeah, so it's kind of like, it's the book is, is both of us kind of doing our very, uh, you know, respective interpretive gestures about what these songs mean and what they mean to us. So for my final question, for those just beginning their journey and discovering Steely Dan, where would you recommend they start? I mean, Asia is a great place to start, like, because that's a perfect album. If you don't like Asia, you're probably not going to like Steely Dan, I assume. Um, I think that I would go, I would go there. But at the same time, you know, I might go Katie Lied. Like, I'm a really big uh, Katie Lied fan. And I might also go Countdown because that's not, you know, it's sort of as free to there aren't as many, you know, as many kind of huge songs on that one but that's the one that feels the most like an indie rock record so if you come from the the indie rock tradition in any way like i feel like maybe countdown is for you it's it's sort of it's the only one that was written for a touring rock band that you know was going to go into the studio and i think that there's something to that um and i will also say uh it's sort of an oddball way to do it but like i maybe recommend this uh the classic albums documentary about the making of asia which will also introduce you to them as characters they are the you know two of the funniest men who were ever in a popular rock band and i think that really comes through in the documentary which is sort of hilarious for other reasons and for production values reasons and all kinds of things um it's the but it's it's the source of a lot of you know lore uh, pre-internet that was kind of where you would go for your steely dan lore and so I'd, you know start with those with probably one of those um and you know not to be this is since this is a promotional interview i will say that i wanted quantum criminals like as i was writing i wanted this to be something that would 
obviously the people who are really buying this book and responding to it and the people who have really loved it are people who are lifelong Steely Dan mm-hmm. fans. But I kind of wanted this to be a book that you could pick up if you were like, I don't get what the big deal is about Steely Dan and maybe sort of, you know, kind of have it be a way in. I didn't want it to be opaque to the, you know, the average person. I sort of can't imagine somebody be, wanting to do that, wanting to read a whole book about a band that they were not sure about, but I feel like you could do it. I feel like it's possible. So that's that's my that is my recommendation. Well, Alex, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Uh, this was a great conversation, and uh, the book is absolutely brilliant. And I think you and Joan should be incredibly proud. Um, it, it's it's really great. Thank you so much, Bradley. Thanks for having. My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest Alex Papadimas. His latest book is Quantum Criminals. Ramblers, Wild Gamblers, and Other Soul Survivors from the Songs of Steely Dan, and is published by University of Texas Press. <laughs>